0: This is Scott Richman, the director for New York and New Jersey for ADL, the Anti-Defamation League, coming to you from the front lines. ADL is on the front line every day fighting anti-Semitism and hate, and this show brings that to you from ADL's headquarters in New York. If there were ever a front line, it is Israel in the wake of the barbaric atrocities committed by the Hamas terrorist group on October 7. Today's podcast will focus on the life-saving work of rescuers without borders, or LeLo Lelogulot in Hebrew. I've asked their spokesperson, Natalie Sapinski, to join me to describe their extraordinary efforts over the past few weeks. Welcome, Natalie, to From the Front Lines.
1: Thank you, Scott. Thanks for having me.
0: So let's start with the basic function of Rescuers Without Borders. What had been its basic role up until October 7th?
1: Uh, very simple. Our basic goal is to save lives, meaning we are the emergency rescue first responders. And that could mean a car accident. It could mean a heart attack um, or a terror incident. All those things that lead to a medical emergency. When someone calls 101, that is the national hotline. We work in coordination with Magenda Viradome in certain areas of the country, and we're the ones on those Ambulances, and we're the ones actually who get there before the ambulance to stabilize the victim and secure the area.
0: And how do you get there so quickly?
1: We have a communications network set up with the regional security, Maganda Vida Dome, and uh, Search and Rescue.
0: And who does this work?
1: Volunteers, people, normal people, mommies and daddies, you know, teachers and lawyers and farmers, Some people don't even have a job. Religious, non-religious, young and old. We have 1,600 volunteers in Israel. People all the time are are waiting to be trained. It's a special type of person that does this kind of work.
0: So you said religious and non-religious. So this isn't simply a matter of religious duty.
1: No, 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 not at all.
0: And what does that mean to be trained?
1: They're trained medics. That means they have to go through a substantial intensive course. I believe it's six months long. And wow, maybe like 144 hours Plus, once they complete the course, it's through Maganda Dome Accreditation. Once they're through that course, they have to do a, um, what you would call an internship or training for three months, riding along on the different calls and going to the scene with different medics as a trainee, more or less. The ambulance drivers have an even more intense training program. I think it's six months they have to ride along on all the ambulance calls and and see and observe and help. Our, Our medics are really tough. Uh, unbelievably, they help both Jews and Arabs, and we do have some um, Arab, Palestinian Arab rescuers, and they have to keep their affiliation with us pretty quiet. Believe it or not, they're, they're they're good people, you know. They're doctors, and they have to be guarded.
0: Tell us now how rescuers without borders immediately mobilized on October seventh.
1: On October seventh, we we got there as fast as we could in the morning, and helped as many victims we could um, with their wounds. a lot of injured people. First of all, it was a live scene. So there were still terrorists. I mean, there were terrorists in Beersheba, you know, a week later. Uh, I think you've probably heard, you know, four terrorists were found in, a, in a, an apartment in Beersheba. They really got into Israel. Um, they, they say 3,000 Hamas were, were part of that attack. So, so there was, it was a live scene. There were live shooters. So our team um, got there. We are all armed, and we all have vests and helmets. And at the same time, by the way, don't overlook there were there were rockets falling. It was just horrible. So our people came as soon as they heard. Everyone heard at around the same time. They went and did what they could to to find survivors, to help the survivors, to treat the survivors, to treat the injured.
0: How how risky was the work?
1: Workers is risky, uh, risks from above and on the ground. Uh, it's scary, you know, um, it was a live terror incident. So many live shooters, you know, there were gun battles and all these kibbutzim, there were gun battles inside Nachal'oz, inside these, these uh, communities. And people were in their safe rooms listening to this. So many uh, at once, so many at once. So they went in basically like soldiers, And that's what our medics do. Unfortunately, in these areas, that's something that is part and parcel of our work. Um, Everyone is trained. They all have, you know, weapons. And that's the way we live. It's just that there was really, it was a surprise. And it's just so many. Unfortunately, they're used to the rockets. We have a special um, armored blanket that our medics use when there are rockets over there because we do help the people in Gaza often. And they actually have to get under it and put the victim under it also because they can't always get to safety. They can't always get to a shelter.
0: In the weeks since, and even now, your volunteers have come face to face with the most difficult but urgent of tasks, making sure that the bodies of victims are identified so that family members have closure. Tell us about that part of the work.
1: I really don't want to, but I'll I'll tell you a a little. Um, That's a horrible job on a regular day. Meaning like when there's a car accident, or a terror attack on the road. These things happen also. There are body parts, okay? And you gotta match them up. Now, when it's a car accident and there's only three people in the vehicle, it's horrible work, but it's it's not that difficult. But this is different. This is a mass casualty event and they have to match up parts. And that's what they're doing. That that was what they did. That is what Zaka does and that's what we help with. Um, All the time. It's hard to do. And you just, these guys are like, you know, amazing. They're very brave and they're very methodical. And you have to really kind of put your emotion on hold when you're doing such difficult, detailed um, emotional work.
0: Some of the bodies were so mutilated. I I can imagine it was incredibly difficult to do this.
1: They had to use DNA evidence, um, do special scientific processes to to do that. The the searching is, is so... It's very hard, very hard to to, to find to find people in, in pieces.
0: Talk to us about the work of rescuers without borders and simply going to the south. What did they encounter as they traveled there?
1: Things are closed and there are um, security checks all over the place. Before, I mean, I was just there in, in July, actually, at our farm. We have a horse farm at uh, and it's like really nice there. It's real quiet. It's really back. Now it's not just empty of, of people, uh, but now you see it. Now you see security, There's security everywhere. Um, it's, it's like a war zone and there are checkpoints before it wasn't like that at all. And uh, the, uh, the, 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 terrorists obviously knew how open it was. They walked right in.
0: And what of the survivors? Uh, Cause we we've been talking now about the, um, those who were killed, but what are the survivors? How did Rescuers Without Borders help them?
1: It was, we did medical treatment and, and, you know, got those people that needed help on the ambulances to the hospitals. If, if you remember back then, I mean, the numbers are just crazy. They're staggering. All the hospitals, um, not just Barzilai in, in Ashkelon, but like also in, in Tel Aviv, they were taking them, Beresheva Soroka, overflowing. I know a mother, a um, friend of mine who was here for a wedding. The wedding she was going to, the brother um, is in the army and he was rescuing someone and his arm got shot off and he's lying in Soroka Hospital and they put him in a coma. He doesn't have his arm and they're still there in the south. A lot of people have been evacuated to the Dead Sea, to a Eilat um, and, and family and friends, maybe in other parts of the country. But our rescuers um, are there because not everyone has been able to leave. So we have people there helping the people who are stranded there, who are stuck there. And, and there are a lot of older people there. There are um, like little old age homes in some of these communities. And these people have like helpers from the Philippines. And a lot of those people were either kidnapped or they were murdered. And if they survived, a lot of them left. They, fl- they fled. So these older people who've had these uh, helpers are now alone and they can't leave. They can't walk, they're sick, they're disabled, or they're old. And our our, um, rescuers are helping those towns with uh, getting medicine to them and helping them with their medical needs and some other needs. There's just nobody at these towns. It's, It's like all of a sudden a ghost town. Everyone left. Everything's closed. No stores. So we've kind of taken on that role, interestingly enough. We are able to do that because we are kind of involved in um, some of these towns anyway. We we have an arm of our organization that form, formulated a couple of years ago when all those tunnels were discovered and all those rockets were being shot over to those communities. We have people in Europe who uh, donated a very sophisticated shelter in Naha'oz, and um, we actually, you know, do have... Staff, okay, who run, who would run, um, like activities for the kids there. We have connections to the area, to the municipality, and to, and to private citizens. And it's very, very sad that that we know so many people because um, some of them are, are gone. They were either murdered or kidnapped.
0: I know that there have been conspiracy theories swirling around that there's no proof of some of the worst atrocities committed by Hamas such as raping of women or beheading of, bu- of babies. What is your response to that?
1: There is proof. The Knesset saw movies two days ago. Many of those terrorists had GoPro cameras. They, they recorded what they did. These are not theories. These are atrocities that happened. Nobody would make them up. They recorded them, people saw them. It's horrible. What do you mean, what is my reaction? It's horrible, these are monsters, monsters. They need to be destroyed. Hamas does not need to exist. I'm an American, right? And I grew up with folk tales and nursery rhymes, and I remember the the story of Little Red Riding Hood, right? And she uh, gets to that house, and it's her grandmother dressed up like a wolf. Okay, that's 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 how scary this is. <laughs> you know what I mean, that's how scary this is. These people are are uh, came in, and they're you. I mean, you look at who acts like that. Didn't, didn't one of these notion times arms, they wanted to put a little girl in the oven? They put a baby in an oven. They cooked a baby. It doesn't seem real. And I don't know if it's better to die or to survive having witnessed something like that. I can't put, my, put myself in the place of those children who either heard what was going on or watched. It's, it's not something that anybody should have to go through
0: you are american you made aliyah from the united states what what is your story
1: i'm from delaware originally and i uh i'm the first person in my family to go to israel i went here on a program the one-year program in college in
0: 1991 hebrew university
1: hebrew university one-year program right I just was looking for an adventure, really. I didn't have a strong Jewish connection and nobody in my family had ever been to Israel. And I actually had planned to go to France and I met some people in college. They were Israeli and they said, you should go to Israel. And I said, okay, I'll try it. So I went and loved the spirit here, loved the the pride. You know, i had been raised to be quiet about being Jewish. Um, I was I was not that girl in school. Who would raise her hand and say, we can't have a test that day. It's a Jewish holiday. I was embarrassed by that girl. I came to Israel and I met Jews from all over the world who were anything but quiet. And I was like, wow, we don't have to be quiet. This is great. I think I'm going to live here. And I, and I did. I moved.
0: Uh, how long ago was that?
1: I moved for the first time in 1993. As soon as I graduated college. And um, I lived in Tel Aviv and got a job. and got an apartment. And just lived a, a normal single girl's life in the city, pretty much. And a couple years later, I, I went to the States to visit my parents. And I met my husband. And I told him, look, I'm living in Israel. If you want to be serious and you want to get married, that's where we're going to live. And he said, okay.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: that's kind of how that happened.
0: All right. So you've been there a long time. Tell us what the mood is like in Israel today.
1: Well, the mood is is very... Very united, very strong. The morale is high. Everywhere you go, you see Israeli flags. It's like they they do this every year for Yom Ha'atzmaut, for Independence Day. It's the same. It's the same feeling. It's that old-fashioned, um, patriotic feeling that maybe used to be in America. I remember growing up, it was like that. It's amazing. People are doing everything. There are so many things to do. Nobody is sitting around doing nothing. There are farmers who are in the army and their their crops need to be picked. You know, their cabbages, their onions, their lettuce and cause have gone out for for volunteers. And they're getting these volunteers from all over the country to pick their crops. Even my son, he's in a pre-army program. His dorm has been taken over by. People who've evacuated their homes near the Lebanon border. So he actually has been working on a date farm. People need to sew uniforms and there are women sewing uniforms, washing uniforms. They got people making food, people delivering equipment. There are musical stars who are going to all the different bases and giving concerts. There are hotels that are giving rooms for free, you know, for people who evacuated. And they actually need waiters and they need people to play with the kids. People are donating games. People are volunteering to spend time with the older people who are on their own. Uh, there, there's a whole list. I have a whole list of just in Jerusalem, volunteer opportunities. People are flying in to help, flying in to help from other places, from other countries. Amazing, amazing. You know, when this started, they called, I, I'm pretty sure the number is 350,000 reserves were called. And, and that is the largest number ever called since the Yom Kippur War, which was 400,000 reserves, okay? Everybody came. LL did flights to like Peru and Bangkok, South America, um, New York City, um, Israel brought people from nearby Greece um, and Larnaca, where everybody goes on vacation nearby here, Cyprus, everybody came. People who had just been released from the army, maybe just like a week before or two weeks before, they came back. They all came back. They are so revved up to win this thing. The, 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 the morale is very high.
0: What about the soldiers? What about among them? Uh, and some of whom are your own children? What, what's their mood?
1: Right, so I have two boys um, fighting and their morale is pretty high too. It, it is, it is high. Um, if it isn't high, they're kicked out. I have a son who's in khanim uh, paratroopers. They are part of the ground invasion. And I even asked him, what happens if people don't want to go in? And he said, there were some, they put them somewhere else. They are very confident. They're very ready and practice did a lot of practice, and they, they want to get this done. Just like our, our medics, you have to be a certain mindset to do this kind of work, okay? They don't take you to be in a certain division if you're going to flake out, okay? <laughs> you're not, you're not going to stay there. You're going to go do something else, and if you're in a certain role as a volunteer in life and as a professional in life, I think, you have to be not just qualified, but you have to have that You have to have the OFI, you know, you have to have that personality. You have to be able to put yourself all in. And Israelis now, they're all in.
0: You must have that personality. You've been a volunteer with Rescuers Without Borders now for a long time. Why did you become involved with the organization?
1: I didn't realize these volunteers who were helping us here were volunteers. I um, actually went into labor on a Friday night at two in the morning. And needed an ambulance. And they came and got me. And uh and then and then I and I realized I knew them. I knew the people on the ambulance. And I was like, wow, you're a you're a medic. You know, it was like the guy who works at the store. And like one of them was a teacher of my child. And I and and I learned about the organization.
0: How can listeners find out more about your work and support your efforts?
1: Um, They can find us very easily. We have a website, www.hatsalah.org.il. That's Hatsalah with an H on the end. And um, you could also look at Rescuers Without Borders. And that's the English translation.
0: The people listening to this show are mostly Americans who are concerned about what has happened in Israel and and fearful of the loss of life to come as as Israel routes out Hamas from the Gaza Strip. As a person who holds life so sacred that you have sacrificed so much to ensure uh, this act of life or or your rescuers to ensure this act of life, I mean, the, the retrieval and identification of body parts, uh, they they refer to it as chasad shalemet, um, you know, you carry this out. What would you say to the listeners who are concerned about Israel going to war against Hamas? How worried should they be? that Israel will indiscriminately bomb civilians?
1: War is terrible, and we're the most moral army in the world. We are determined to rid the world of this menace, Hamas, and we're we're gonna do whatever we need to do. My son is there, okay? So I don't like to think of what could happen. I know what could happen. Every day we get reports of how many soldiers have died. It's to the point where I don't look at the news and I don't answer my phone if I don't recognize the phone number and I'm scared to death, all right? But this is war, Hamas and the leaders of Gaza have been playing this game for too long and it's, it's enough, we, 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 we can't live like this anymore. We told them to leave, we sent them pamphlets and warnings, but you know, our side didn't get any warnings war is terrible you lose life it's awful but we are fighting evil and we have to get rid of evil
0: natalie i am so grateful for the incredible work that you and the volunteers do every day thank you for this and thank you for being on from the front lines today to tell your story
1: okay i hope it did some good
0: that concludes today's special podcast which for the foreseeable future will bring the stories from israel to a broader audience as part of my work to fight anti-Semitism and all forms of hate as ADL regional director in New York and New Jersey. And thank you to you, the listeners who tuned in to From the Frontlines. If you are moved by what you have heard, please share this podcast. These stories must be heard. And if you're not already a subscriber, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or on Spotify to ensure that you do not miss a show. Just search for From the Frontlines. And please engage in these important conversations throughout the week by following me on Facebook and X. My X handle is at Scott A. Richmond. My Instagram and threads handle is at Scott underscore ADL. And our hashtag is fighting hate for good.